0: So if you have a Bible uh, with you, if you could turn or press or slide, depending on how you read your Bible these days, to John chapter 17. So John chapter 17. This is God's word. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are one of the disciples you have been journeying with Jesus and particularly in the Gospel of John, you've been seeing amazing things that Jesus has both been doing and he's been teaching. And then you're coming to this point where Jesus is talking about he's about to go away. He's talking about he will eventually go to the cross, he will die and all these things are going on. And you might be a disciple sitting there going, oh, this is our master, this is our rabbi, this is the one that we've been following. We... We believe in him and yet he's just talking about he's going away. Now I want you to imagine. He's just had a meal. He's washed their feet. And then he turns around and he talks about what's going to happen after he goes. And he encourages them and then he prays for them. So imagine you're in that room. Imagine if you're there. And here are these words of his. This is Jesus speaking. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence for the glory that I had with you before the word existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you, whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me, I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and they, the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Through their word, that they, will, they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love that which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me pray. Jesus, we've just read your words. We pray that as we sit and listen, that you would stir in our hearts what you're saying to us, both individually but as a community. That you drown out the noises that are going on in our souls, and that we'll walk away knowing you more today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um. Over the last few weeks, we as a church have been going through this idea of what it means to pray like Jesus, Uh, and we've been uh, spending a bit of time, particularly over the last uh, couple of weeks, on a particular prayer that Jesus taught. It's probably one of the most world-famous prayers that Jesus taught on. It's known as the Lord's Prayer, or I would say the Disciple's Prayer, and there are even church services this morning, as part of their church service, they would actually recite those words. And we were trying to kind of establish this idea that how you approach the creator of the universe will really depend on how you see him. If you see him as a God that is very distant, far away, then you will approach him in that way. But if you see him as your heavenly father, one who intimately knows you, one who knows exactly everything about you, to the point that it's described, that even before you even utter what you need, he already knows exactly what's going on. And if that is true, then you will approach him very differently. And you can approach him anywhere, anytime, because of what Jesus has done. This passage is a very famous passage as well. This is one of the most significant prayers that Jesus said while he was here on this earth. And it's a wonderful thing because it's so rich and so deep. And, and and as I've been kind of resting and wrestling through this passage of this past week, I've been deeply challenged myself. And I hope this week, uh, today, we want to refresh and rethink and hopefully encourage you as we meditate on this passage. Uh, in the last few weeks, we've had some significant, I guess, Moving on or resignations, both from the political parties and political realm. Recent, most recent, of course, is Barack Obama. He's moved on from his presidency and someone else has stepped in, no matter whatever you may think on American politics. What's been interesting uh, is to see and hear their last statements that they make as they move on, as power shifts from them. What kind of things that they say. The, the former President Barack Obama, in his speech he says this, My fellow Americans, it's been an honour of my life to serve you. I won't stop. In fact, I'll be right there with you as a citizen for all my remaining days. But for now, whether you are young or whether you are young at heart, I do have one final ask You ask of you as your president. The same thing I asked when you took a chance on me eight years ago. I'm asking that you believe, not in my ability to bring about change, but in yours. I'm asking for you to hold fast to the faith written in our founding documents, that idea whispered by slaves and abolish, abolishists, the spirit sung by immigrants and homesteaders, and those who marched for justice, that creed reaffirmed by those who planted flags from foreign battlefields to the surface of the moon, a creed at the core of every American. His story is not re- yet written. Yes, we can. Yes, we did. Yes, we can very moving and powerful to hear. A bit further up north, the border, recently the New South Wales Premier Mark Braid also resigned from his post. And in his speech he said, as I've reflected on the approaching halfway mark of our current term of government and the opportunity presents to refresh the Cabinet team, I have decided that this is the perfect time for me to hand the reins over to a new Premier. We've repaired the state budget rejuvenated the economy, created jobs in unprecedented numbers, boosted frontline services, unleashed an infrastructure boom in Sydney and the regions which everyone can see with their own eyes. I don't know if you saw the the press conference that he gave. He was quite emotionally even shared about the challenge that he had in regards to some of the things that was going on in his family and one of the reasons why he's moving on. If you don't know, Michael Bade is a follower of Jesus. Now it's actually quite interesting on both of these speeches very different obviously different kind of leaders at the heart of it what they're really doing is really making a testimony of the things that they've achieved what they have done and what they're doing is as their final speech they're really encouraging people to either rally again to the cause to that dream or even to a political party See, this prayer that Jesus prays is just before he heads to the cross. And my hope and prayer is as we think about this prayer, I hope that these words that we just read become words of assurance because they are the most wonderful, assuring words written ever in history. I mean, the leaders that I just read about, they have achieved things. They have done what they expect to do or maybe they were hoping to do and they didn't do it, but either way, they've achieved certain things. But see, what Jesus achieved, what Jesus has achieved continues even today and will also continue tomorrow and will continue for all of eternity. So you have a look at me in verses 1 to 6. Jesus begins by saying, the hour has come. This is the moment where all of history, all of the history from Genesis all the way has been waiting, all of mankind, this history of mankind has been waiting for this moment. And Jesus' prayer at the very start is to glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. This whole idea is, is like saying, he's saying to the Father, he's praying to the Father, 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 display me, show me off. Show my modern day blingness, if you want to use that language. It is the glory that he's talking about here. This is to say, Jesus is saying, Father, show me off. This is the, this is the son that I'm well pleased in. What Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me. Glorify your son. Jesus is once again crying out to the Father and saying, "Father, as you look at me, as you let me be glorified, show because you are pleased in me." And as you read on, Jesus says, "Infer that all authority has been given to him over all flesh, that he has authority to give eternal life to the one the Father has given. It is a wonderful, glorious t- theme that continues in all of the gospel of John. It is to show that Jesus is not just a mere man. He is God himself who has authority to give eternal life to all who turn to him. And even in the, in the language in the story of John, it is, it is now no longer to a special group of people. It has been opened up both to the rich, to the poor, And I love the statement in here about eternal life. What is this eternal life? I don't know, if you've grown up in the Christian circles, eternal life straight away you think of a place maybe, or that moment. Maybe you think it's about being in heaven. I love Jesus' description here in these words. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is much more than just a destination. Eternal life is actually a relationship. It is not some sort of concept that one day we'll get there. It is actually about now knowing him, the son of God, and knowing God, the God of the universe. And with this in mind, he continues to pray. And he makes an amazing statement this idea of this glory, the glory that I had with you, this glory that is displayed, is to say, Jesus is saying in this moment, Father, shine, shine through me in this moment. And he goes to further, this work that was given to him, it has been done, it's been achieved. This work, ultimately, is not only just pointing to the work that he's done in his life, his perfect life that he's lived, but the work that he's about to do onto the cross. He, it's done. The work is about to finish. In this moment, Jesus is actually showing himself more than, once again, he's not just a mere man. He's actually God himself displaying that reality. And his heart, at the end of the day, is that he knows his presence His end goal, his destination is to be in his father's presence, once again that glory shining, just as he has always been, even in eternity past. Friends, these words at the very start, even for us today, should stir in us an assurance. It should cause us to maybe even ponder this question Do you have assurance? Do you rest in this assurance? Do you rest in the assurance of what Jesus has done? Do you rest in the assurance, and when you think about God, do you really know him? Do you know of him, or do you really know him? Now, the politicians that we just read, those statements that they made, and we look at their lives and their achievements, ultimately, all they're going to be is a blimp in the history books. But the things that Jesus has done and continues to do, his achievements, ultimately bringing eternal life to open that door for you and I to be in communion with the God of the universe has eternal ramifications. Eternal ramifications. Because of who he is. In the very first chapter of John, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, Jesus is very clear to say he is not just some spiritual leader or just a mere man or a teacher. He's not just another God. He is the God. Meaning that every description of him in this very moment, in the very aspect of who he is, his very essence, everything is utterance perfect, is displayed. As he lives out, he's showing God himself. And this idea of God, Jesus being the word, it's, it's ushering in a very old language back in the Old Testament in Genesis 1, where God speaks and life begins. So this word, this Jesus is the one that you will find true life in. He's both the one who sustains life and he's the one who brings life. Oh friends, do you rest in the assurance of the work that Jesus has done? Or do you rest in your own work? Oh friends, do you rest in knowing him? Or do you just know of him? And here in these words, as Jesus prays, he approaches the Father. He makes these wonderful statements of assurance for us of what he has done, of who he is. Then he turns around and he prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. And I love what Jesus prays about. What does he pray about? Does he pray, oh, Father, I pray that you would help them not to go through any bad things in their lives? Does he pray, oh, Father, I pray that none of them will ever, ever get physically ill? Does he pray, oh, Father, I pray that they will plant Lots of churches. I mean, does he pray, oh, Father, I pray that they'll go and heal many people? I mean, does he even pray, oh, Father, I pray that they'll be really, 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 really good Bible teachers? Look at verse 9. In verse 9, he states, I'm praying for them. He's praying for them. He's making it very clear. Then he says who he's not praying for. He's not praying for the world. He's not praying for the world, he's praying for his disciples who are in that room with him. And he prays, Father, they belong to you and they belong to me. They belong to you and they belong to me. He says to them, he's saying as he's praying for his disciples, that as they live, that they will actually proudly display, that you would proudly display in them yourself, and me. And in verse 11, he keeps on saying, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be even one as we are one. See, these words are there even for the disciples, even as we listen in and maybe even as we read. These are words of assurance. Can you just imagine listening to these words as a disciple? Jesus praying, Father, guard them, keep them united as one, just like you and me. And this whole idea of unity is not just some sort of fairy, really cool, trendy Christian term to use. So if you use uh, the word unity, in particular you're one, maybe in the Australian culture, one of the songs that probably comes up is, we are one, we are many, from all the lands of earth we come, we share a dream, we sing in one voice, we are, you are, we are, Australian. Now, for those of you who don't know who that is, they're called the Seekers. The Seekers were probably the original hipsters before what you have now. Now, that's a wonderful song in some sense, and it's very rousing, but this picture of unity, this one, is actually far more beautiful, far more greater. See, it's not some airy-fairy thing. And neither is it something achieved by their work and their hard work. It's actually all of God's work. He does it in His name. Because it's him that guards. It's him who holds them together. And what he prays for the disciples is, Father, he's not praying, Lord, please wrap them up in cotton wool and hope nothing happens to them. There's a purpose of the guarding. The guarding, there's something significant about it. You see them, in verse 14. They have been given something. They've been given God's word. Now, we live on this side of the empty tomb and it's very easy when we hear the word word, we think automatically, oh yes, that's the Bible, that's what they're giving. Look, as far as I know, I've tried to look it up in the historical books, I don't think there was like a ceremony at the end of that supper where Jesus stood and there was, you know, usually at the end of the year we have the Sunday school kind of thing where Jesus stood there and he had a certificate for them to give and a Bible and a sticker for who were the best disciples and all that kind of stuff, okay? That's the language here. So this idea of word was constantly throughout the Gospel of John in particular constantly keeps on coming back. And it's to describe the one. As we read earlier, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Jesus is saying, Father, I'm giving myself, you've I've given my word, myself in them. And earlier on he talks about the Holy Spirit who will actually help them and enable them. Jesus is saying I've given them, of myself. And the consequence of that, the world will hate them. The reason why the world will hate them in that language is to say there's something that's going on straight away, that they're no longer citizens. They're not, they are no longer citizens of this world. They're actually aliens. They're actually exiles. They don't belong in this world. Just as the one they have committed to love and serve. Just as the one who himself said he's not of this world. This is not his home. You know, it's just to be a fly in that room and listening. But I've got to be honest with you, as much as it's awesome looking at this passage and thinking, oh yeah, that's powerful, imagine being those disciples. I know if I was one of those disciples in that room, some of the things that would automatically go in my mind as Jesus is praying I would automatically look down and maybe as soon as I hear, the world will hate them. (laughs) My first reaction might be turn around and go, um, hey Peter, did you hear that? But then it gets better. I love Jesus' prayer. I ask that you do not take them out of the world, but keep them, God, from the evil one. In that moment is maybe if I was a disciple, I would go, ah, Jesus, sorry to interrupt. Great prayer, powerful stuff. Um, just to clarify, did I just hear you say that the world will hate us? Okay, cool. Um, There's another thing. Did, is this right? Uh, you, but you're not going to take us out of the world, right? The world's going to hate us, just to clarify. And then also the, the devil is going to be after us. Uh, just curiosity. Is there a reason why you're not asking for us to be taken out of this world? Just wondering. See, if you're new to the Christian faith then maybe even sceptical and exploring, as far as I know, there's no other Christian, there's no other religious leader out there who would have prayed such a prayer. Pray that they would stay, that they would not be taken out of this world. And you may be even sitting there going, that sounds really cruel. Maybe God is just some sort of puppet master playing with these guys' lives. See, if you continue to read in 16 to 19... He's actually doing a wonderful thing. He's showing reassurance. He's showing this wonderful reassurance by saying, "Sanctify them, set them apart." Now, what he's doing is Jesus is saying, "Father, the purpose of these disciples—they have been given a purpose. They've been given a mission. Please set them apart. Display this truth. Display me." in a world that desperately needs to know this. Not in their own effort, not in their own work. The work is done by Jesus. See, this whole idea of verse 19 is talking about Jesus being set apart for what? What is the whole purpose? I mean, even Jesus himself has been set apart for something. What was Jesus set apart for? The task that was to go to the cross. So the idea of Jesus being set apart, he had a mission and that mission was to die on a cross. We sang about it this morning. But that whole purpose, that sanctifying, that, that setting apart is also to give us reassurance. It is all God's work for anyone who calls on him. That we have then been set apart. Followers of Jesus, do you live with this assurance that you've been set apart? I mean, I know that Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples, but I don't know if you ever, in your faith, ever feel like Jesus has left the building and he's not around. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this kind of moment of doubt Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm not a Christian, and you should wrestle with those truths and come to an understanding if that is true of you. But let me tell you, these words are there for us even today, just as He prayed for His disciples. The words of reassurance that if you have given your life to Jesus, the Word is living in you. That you are no longer of this world, just like your Savior, and that He is the one who will keep you. He will guard you. Because he is good and he is our Lord and this is what he says and what he says will happen. His words are there to reassure you and me. Does that reassure you today? Followers of Jesus. Do you hang on to that assurance? If not, maybe somebody consider the following verse in verses 20 to 26. I love this because Jesus moves on from praying and making statements and trusting on who, what he has done, his work, and then praying for uh, assurance for his disciples and the promise that these things will happen and that God will keep them and guard them. And then he moves on to praying for us. On the 7th of December in 1989, a man in a trench coat walks in the rain to a man waiting in the rain after something this guy saw was a disaster. The man reached in his French coat The young man stepped back And he thought the guy had a gun So he pulls out an envelope The young man looks closer and says A letter? The man in the French coat says Yes, a letter And then the, he opens the letter and reads Dear Marty If my calculations are correct You will receive this letter Immediately after you saw The DeLorean struck by lightning First let me assure you That I am alive and well I've been living happily these past eight months in the year 1885. The lightning bolt that hit the DeLorean caused gigawatt overload. It scrambled the time for circuits and activated the flux capacitor and sent me back to 1885. The overload shorted out the time circuits and destroyed the flying circuits. Unfortunately, the car will never fly again. Doc Emmett L. Brown from Back to the Future, part two. Now that's a silly illustration. But here's a man writing from the past to someone who's in the future to give him assurance. And here we have the wonderful words of someone far greater than Doc, our Savior, who's written these words, who said these words of assurance to us. That they may be all one, just as you and me, Father, are one. And what's the whole purpose of this unity? There is a purpose, that the world may believe That you have sent me. Jesus is praying that in this idea of unity that we're actually displaying both of that wonderful truth of the Father and Son being one. It's a picture to the world, and it's a greater picture of that the Jesus was sent by the Father. This is the one who came to the world, who displayed beautifully what it means to be one with the Father. And this is the one who then calls others, all of us, to gather around and be totally focused on this person, Jesus, who brings unity. A few years ago, when I went to a student conference, there was a girl there who did not know Jesus. And she came to all our meetings. We had like a mini church service every morning, and we sang songs, and we had a sermon sermon. After the service, I asked her the question, you know, how do you feel about this? You know, singing songs and hearing someone preaching. And she said, I've got to be honest with you, that song that you guys sang about nothing but the blood of Jesus, so wash me clean and flowing, flowing, I felt sick after the first verse. Because I don't really quite get what you're singing about. But I've got to say something, there's something different here. There are people from all over Australia, different backgrounds, there's some sort of thing here that I can't explain, that I've never seen before. Friends, it's a beautiful thing when there are people from different backgrounds and personalities all gathering around this central person, Jesus. See, when that happens, when that really happens, actually what we're seeing is prayers being answered of our great master. And then Jesus talks about, as that happened, the glory, and he once again goes back to that statement again. And he says, "In that moment, as we are united around the sun, in that moment, as we are united, our wonderful Saviour, it is actually bearing witness to all watching him. See, friends, that means for us, for those of us who gather on a Sunday morning, for even for a very, very simple level." The idea of that individualism that your culture constantly says to you actually gets put out in the car park. When we gather in front of our Savior, as we sing, as we worship, as we hear his word preached, we remember communion. It should actually reflect what Jesus has done and the oneness that he has with the Father that he is displayed in us today, this morning, as we gather like that. And it should be a witness in a community that is constantly watching us. This is what Jesus prayed for us. And the question we ask is, is that true of us today at Canterbury Gardens Community Church? Are we one? Is that what our community sees in us? I think I find it quite interesting the way that the devil comes into this world and tempts the first humans. He divides them from a relationship with the creator of the universe and divides them between the husband and wife. And there has been a story all the way along even to today. As leadership teams, sometimes here at Canary, we hear of stories of churches splitting up and fighting and closing down, and it's a grievous thing because the only one that is laughing is the devil. And in that moment, there's even something greater going on in that—the failing of the gospel witnesses happened in that city, in that neighbourhood. But isn't it a beautiful thing when different backgrounds and people gather around the Son of Jesus? It actually becomes a wonderful witness and a wonderful threat to the evil one. And this is not something that is done out of our own motivation. This is done by the work of our Savior. Jesus says in verse 24, Father, I desire they also see and witness me and all my glory and all my magnificence. Jesus is saying once again as he prays, This work will be done. His will will be done. And he's crying out and saying, Father, let them see this. And friends, it's a wonderful picture for us as we think and ponder on this. This is our wonderful Savior. This is a wonderful one who has gone before us. This is the one who came into this world. This is the one who has opened it for us to be in relationship with him. But he has given us assurance. And it's being displayed in this prayer throughout all of this. And what has it done? I love in verse 26, I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be with them and in them. It's all Jesus' wonderful, reassuring words praying for his disciples, for us. That he will make his love known to us. So these are wonderful words for us this morning. Are these reassuring words for you? Jesus has made himself known to you. This wonderful Savior who came to this world to make this possible. This wonderful Savior in a few chapters would go and would utter the most glorious and beautiful words in the Gospel of John. It is finished. He has done it. That means we can come to him. That means we can gather around him. And so the question this morning is, is that true for you? The guy who wrote John, later on wrote 1 John chapter 2. He says, My little children are writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we be an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, the prayer in Jesus in John 17 continues until today. That we have a wonderful Savior who is praying for us, who's interceding for us. That means we can come to him. That means in those terrible scenes that we saw unfolding this week, in the midst of the rage and anger that may happen, even uh, uh, responding on social media, that we have someone that we can go to. We can go to someone who has conquered sin, evil and death and pray. This is our savior. This is our king. So Jesus' prayer gives you and me a great assurance that he has done it. So we can actually rest. That means he will continue to work in you. So submit to him every day. And that you belong to him and he belongs to you. So that you'll pray that his work of the gospel will shine through you and me every day. Let me pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for who you are. I thank you for being the great high priest who prayed this prayer. I thank you for your gracious gift. I thank you that we have assurance in you. I thank you that you prayed for us. Help us to rest in these truths today. Help us to apply these truths today. In Jesus' name, amen.